It is a great pleasure for me to welcome you to our panel today entitled Agency Preemption, Speak Softly But Carry a Big Stick? Question mark. As moderator, my task is twofold. First, I hope to frame the panel discussion by reference to preemption law generally, as well as recent events and developments in agency preemption. Secondly, I hope to convince you of the enormous importance of this otherwise arcane topic. Because while the topic may sound esoteric, it goes to the heart of our constitutional order, in my view. As one scholar explained, the extent to which a federal statute displaces state law affects both the substantive legal rules under which we live and the distribution of authority between the states and the federal government. Speaking generally, there are three types of preemption. Express preemption, implied field preemption, and implied conflict preemption. This panel will focus on implied conflict preemption, which courts will find either where it is impossible for a private party to comply with both state and federal requirements, or where state law stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the full purposes and objectives of Congress. Given that we have a former official of the Food and Drug Administration on our panel today, I thought I would set the stage for today's panel debate by discussing a recent state court case dealing with agency preemption. The case is Levine versus Wyeth, a decision of the Vermont Supreme Court. The facts of the case are simple yet sympathetic. Levine brought a tort action alleging negligence and failure to warn against the drug company and was awarded $6.8 million in damages by a jury. Her claim was that the warning accompanying the drug was insufficient to alert her and her doctors to the dangers of intravenous injection. The primary question on appeal was whether Levine's failure to warn claims were preempted by the FDA's approval of the particular label that accompanied the drug. The Vermont Supreme Court essentially held that FDA's approval of the drug label constituted a warning floor and not a ceiling. In other words, the court thought Wyeth could have and should have done more to warn Levine of the dangers associated with intravenous injection of Phenergan. In dissent, the Vermont Chief Justice argued that by approving Phenergan for marketing and distribution, the FDA concluded that the drug, with its approved methods of administration as labeled, was both safe and effective. He continued, In finding defendant liable for failure to warn, a Vermont jury concluded that the same drug, with its FDA-approved methods of administration and as labeled, was unreasonably dangerous. These two conclusions are in direct conflict. 
In the Chief Justice's view, the FDA's approval of the warning label constituted both a floor and a ceiling, and Levine's claims were, in his view, preempted. Well, such competing views raise important legal questions. In Levine, the drug company's position was bolstered by a statement of the FDA that cases rejecting preemption of failure-to-warn claims pose an obstacle to the agency's enforcement of the labeling requirements. So what sort of deference, if any, is due to an agency's statement about the preemptive scope of its regulations? Most broadly, in promulgating preemptive regulations and adopting statements regarding preemption, can and do agencies adequately protect the values of federalism? How should the traditional presumption against preemption operate in this realm? Finally, what is the best way to protect citizens like Ms. Levine? The U.S. Supreme Court has the opportunity to enlighten us on the, enlighten us on the proper resolution of some of these difficult questions when it considers the case of Waters versus Wachovia Bank this, later this month. At issue in that case is a regulation promulgated by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which states that unless otherwise provided by federal law or OCC regulation, state laws apply to national bank operating subsidiaries to the same extent that they apply to the parent national bank. The Sixth Circuit, following both the Second Circuit and my court, the Ninth Circuit, applying Chevron deference, took the view that the commissioner's regulations preempted Michigan banking laws in their entirety as applied to the operating subsidiaries. Perhaps one of our panelists will comment on why it is that the Supreme Court took waters given the fact that the three prominent cases all came out the same way. But in any event, to help us think about the many important issues in the lead-up to Waters and beyond, the Federalist Society has gathered a distinguished group of scholars who will speak with us today. We will be hearing first from Daniel Troy, who is a partner in the Washington office of Sidley Austin and immediately prior to that served as the chief counsel of the Food and Drug Administration after being appointed to the position by President George W. Bush. In that role, Mr. Troy was an active player in the FDA's generally successful assertion of preemption in selected product liability cases. Mr. Troy is a graduate of Columbia Law School and served as a clerk for D.C. Circuit Judge Robert Bork from 1983 to 1984. Next, we'll be hearing from Ronald Cass, who currently serves as the president of Cass and Associates. He previously served as dean of the Boston University School of Law from 1990 to 2004, and was a commissioner and then later vice chairman of the U.S. International Trade Commission under Presidents Reagan and Bush I. 
Dean Cass is a graduate of the University of Virginia and of the University of Chicago Law Review with honors. After graduation, he served as law clerk to the Honorable Colin Seitz, Chief Judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. We will then hear from Professor Catherine Sharkey, newly minted professor of law at Columbia Law School and currently visiting professor at NYU Law School. Since joining the Columbia faculty, Professor Sharkey has come to be recognized as a leading voice in the legal academy on both punitive damages and products liability preemption. Professor Sharkey is a graduate of Yale University as well as Oxford, which she attended as a Rhodes Scholar. She is a graduate of Yale Law School and served as law clerk for Judge Guido Calabresi of the Second Circuit and Justice David Souter of the Supreme Court. And finally, we will hear from Professor Thomas Merrill, the Charles Keller Beekman Professor of Law also at Columbia Law School. Professor Merrill recently filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Center for State Enforcement of Antitrust and Consumer Protection Laws in the Waters versus Wachovia Bank case that will be argued shortly. He is a graduate of Grinnell College and also attended Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. After graduation from the University of Chicago Law School, he served as law clerk to Judge David Bazelon of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and to Justice Harry Blackman of the Supreme Court of the United States. We will hear first from Mr. Troy. Thank you. Thank you, Judge, for the introduction, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I wonder, often those of us who are members of this society who are in favor of preemption in appropriate circumstances are accused of being hypocrites because everybody says, well, it's the Federalist Society, confusing Federalist and Federalism. And I want to make clear that there is a difference between the Federalist Society and being reflexively in favor of federalism. The... uh, Madison was selected as the icon for our group, not because of his much later states' rights positions, but because he was the father of the Constitution. And sometimes I think we should have selected, um, and I was complaining to Peter Keisler about this the other night, should have selected both Madison and Hamilton because it is, of course, the Federalist, the papers, the Federalist that, uh, after which the society is named, and it is that, it, it, and, and those papers are in favor of a strong, albeit limited, central government. Um, And it's important in the context of this conference, which is about limited government, to really focus on the importance of preemption to limiting government. What do I mean? If you you have very strong, in the case of food and drugs, (laughs) case of drugs, comprehensive federal regulation, if you do not have preemption, you end up with two or indeed perhaps 51 levels of, 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 of government, um, 51 different systems that people need to uh, navigate. Now, one can imagine a world where there was no federal regulation at all of drugs, and then you would have to have, presumably, every state regulating, and then you might have competitive federalism, you might not. But where you have the system that we have, at least in the realm of food, of, in the realm of, dr- of drugs, of medical products, where you cannot begin to test a product in humans without getting the federal government to approve in it in advance. You cannot market the product without the federal government approving it in advance. You cannot 
um, manufacture the product without the government approving it in advance. And although people hear the word new drug application, they think, oh, college application, you know, maybe it's this thick, maybe it's this thick. In fact, an NDA, uh, new drug application, ha normally has as much data and as much boxes of documents as would literally fill this room. These applications are delivered to the, to the agency by the truckload. Um, and the agency looks at that data and maybe most important for the purposes of this panel, c comprehensively de determines what may and may not be said about the drug product through the labeling. And that labeling is not merely a floor, notwithstanding what the Vermont Supreme Court said. What FDA said in its most recent preemption preamble is that it is a floor and a ceiling. And I want to illustrate that by talking about some specific cases because the devil is in the details. Um, and on the one hand, this st stuff can be esoteric and arcane, but if you really look at the sort of public health of the matter, and I'd like to suggest the common sense of the matter by looking at individual cases, I think the case for preemption becomes very powerful. And let me talk about a case called Dowhell, which is a California Supreme Court case ultimately. What happened in this case is, as many of you know, California has something called Proposition 65, which requires warnings uh, if there's any substance in a product that can either be carcinogenic and cause cancer or uh, can cause harm to, uh, in a pregnant con pregnancy context. And the issue was products that are called nicotine replacement therapy products. These are products that somebody takes if they're trying to quit smoking. Well, FDA had said, we want a warning to say, try to stop smoking without this product, but this product can be useful, but you know, talk to your doctor, but nicotine can uh, you know, have adverse uh, impacts. There was a lawsuit that was filed under Prop 65, which, to his credit, the California Attorney General at the time did not join. But the gravamen of the suit, the, the, the suit said, we want a nicotine replacement therapy product to say, nicotine can harm your baby. That's all. Well, FDA rejected this warning in a series of letters, in more formal responses to things called citizen petitions. And FDA said, we don't want that warning. That warning might cause a woman who should stop smoking. Ideally, she wouldn't use either of these products. She wouldn't, she wouldn't smoke, and she wouldn't use a nicotine replacement therapy product. But that might cause a woman to, you know, to mis misunderstand that acetine, actually a nicotine replacement therapy product is a good thing. Well, the California Court of Appeals said, as this Vermont Supreme Court decision said, more warnings are always better. It's always better to have more warnings. Fortunately, the Cal and, and FDA did get involved with the very strong support of the career officials in the FDA because one thing federal career officials believe is that when they decide a matter, when they have, in the language of Chevron, precisely, you know, directly spoken to the precise question at issue, that they should get to win. And in this case, they thought they should get to win, and fortunately, we went to the California Supreme Court, and the California Supreme Court said, yes, more warnings are not always better. Another quick, you know, case, perhaps the most controversial, involved something called SSRIs, antidepressants. And when it is a tragic fact that people who are depressed tend to commit suicide. So it's hard to tease out whether or not there is a connection between these antidepressants and suicide. Um, and at the time that these products were first approved, the question to the, the FDA Expert Advisory Committee was, should there be a warning that these products can cause suicide? And they said no, because this might, number one, they didn't think there was, there was data that supported that. Second of it, they thought that might dissuade people who are depressed from taking these antidepressants. There are many people who are very concerned about antidepressants, and so the Scientologists and public citizen came back to the FDA time and time again saying, please put this warning that say these products can cause suicide. And FDA kept saying, no, we're sorry. We don't think that's the right thing to do. It will overwarn. 
It's not just a floor. More warnings are not always better. Well, a lawsuit was brought in the Ninth Circuit, the thrust of which was that, uh, that, in this case, Pfizer should have labeled its product Zoloft, its antidepressant, that would say, this product can cause suicide. And it was obviously brought by someone who was the survivor of someone who had taken the product and six days later caused suicide, committed suicide, tragically. The district court um, said, more warnings are always better. This, this suit can go forward. And FDA got involved and said, excuse me, we think that that would have misbranded the product. So talking about conflict preemption, it certainly seems that if FDA thinks this product would be misbranded, how can a state, uh, a state law requirement compel you to label the product in a way that it would be technically misbranded and illegal under federal law? If that's not an applied conflict preemption, I don't know what is. And uh, FDA has continued to intervene. Uh, and it's important to note, by the way, that when FDA itself does not have litigating authority, FDA does this um, through the HHS General Counsel's Office and then the Justice Department. So the bottom line is FDA then eventually, um, and, I'll, and this is, I think, one of the things that has caused this controversy and has caused to this panel, instead of intervening with individual product uh, amicus briefs, issued this broad statement on preemption that basically said our regulations are not, a, are, are not just a floor, they're also a ceiling, more warnings are not always better, and when we make a decision, and I'll close on this point so we can have discussion here, um, when we make a decision, we are not looking at the benefits and risks of a product in the context of an individual. We are making a societal con- decision. We understand that all drugs have risks. There are no drugs that are risk-free, although people often forget this. And so we, are ma- we understand when we put this product on the market that there will be some adverse events. That is an unhappy fact that comes from having therapeutic products. But we're making a broad risk-benefit calculation, and so that calculation must necessarily displace state suits that would have the effect of undercutting FDA's definitive determination about the warning label. And so that's part of what is sometimes caused, called uh, the uh, stealth you know, tort reform by the Bush administration, but it seems to me that if you are going to have a very powerful federal regulatory scheme, that there's going to be naturally some state regulation imposed through the product liability system that has to be set aside. Thank you. Before I introduce Dean Cass, there are about uh, half a dozen seats on this side in the front three rows for any of you in the back that want to find a better seat than on the stair. I, I can never remember which is the bride's and which is the groom's side. <laughs> well, before I start, I have to say I, I had a phone conversation with uh, my colleagues here, and I misunderstood the topic. I thought that they said to talk softly and do shtick. Um, so uh, I, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to begin with a brief anecdote uh, in that line. And this comes, uh, this is actually a story that my wife uh, told me involving a friend of hers who uh, one day saw a, uh, a funeral procession uh, here in the uh, suburbs of Washington. And it was a very unusual procession. You know, in, in New Orleans, you're used to seeing that, but not in Washington. It consisted of a hearse followed by a second hearse followed by a woman dressed in black walking a dog, followed by a thousand women in single file. Uh, And my wife's friend went up to the woman 
who was walking the dog and said, you know, I, I have to ask you, this is the most unusual funeral procession uh, I've seen. Who's in the hearse? The woman said, it's my husband. How did he die? The woman pointed and said, my dog attacked him. We were having an argument. Um, the dog uh, took it seriously, went berserk, and killed my husband. And uh, Susie's friend apologized and then said, Who, who's in the second hearse? And the woman said, it's my mother-in-law. Uh, she tried to intervene, uh, and the dog killed her too. And Susie's friend thought for a minute and said, can I borrow your dog? <laughs> At which point the woman said, get in line. There are some ideas that seem to be good ideas. They appeal to a lot of people. We're really dealing not with one idea here, but with three different ideas. We're dealing with the, the idea of limited government, the question of the right level of government to make a particular decision, and we're dealing with the right organ of that government to make a decision. What, what's the right competence? Is it the courts? Is it the agencies? Is it the legislature? And for me, the ultimate test is not do all these get us a, a particular amount of government? It's a combination of the quantity and quality of government. Because if you look back to the framing of the Constitution, the concern wasn't just to limit government. Because after all, the Constitution expands the national government in some very significant ways over what it was under the Articles of Confederation. The goal was to preserve and protect liberty and security which is done by having not the minimal government, but the right sort of government uh, delivered in the right way. The Constitution gives the national government control over interstate commerce. It also has a provision saying that the national government should not tax or specifically lay particular impediments to the trade coming out of any one state. And it says to the states, that they shouldn't lay taxes on the trade coming out of their states unless they're directed to by Congress and the uh, tax goes to the Treasury. What the Constitution was quite clearly trying to do was to facilitate the free flow of goods among the states. And it was cognizant, uh, the framers were cognizant of the fact that if you don't give the national government the control over the flow of goods within the states. You will have a lot of impediments to trade because states have an incentive to internalize benefits and externalize costs. We see this all the time when you look at how state attorneys general deal with businesses doing business in their states. They try to impose special burdens on the business that can bring benefits into the state, they try to localize regulation of what is a national or international enterprise. And they frequently do this using very ham-handed means because if they were more transparent about what they were doing, it would be more difficult to get where they want to go. The distinction that Dan Troy drew between those who are Federalists believing in a system with different levels of government and those who believe that that automatically means that all decisions should be made by the state or local level is a very important one. There are certain decisions that should be made at the state or local level because they deal with state and local problems. And that is going to be most congruent with protecting the liberty 
and the values of the people in those states or localities. When you deal with something that has national or international scope, then giving a right to states to speak to those issues can be counterproductive to liberty, security, and efficiency. When we are trying to determine who ought to be making these decisions, we are often dealing with statutes that most of us might not like. We think the area of regulation may not be a good thing. We may think the government, the national government, is excessively regulating. But to then say that the way to deal with that is to allow the states also to regulate may impose additional duplicative and conflicting burdens on business. Those are things we ought to disfavor and we ought to try to avoid whenever possible. A lot of the cases we're dealing with here deal with the question when an agency is regulating, what presumption should attach? Should the presumption be that an agency regulation ousts state regulation? Should we be relatively inclined or relatively disinclined to find conflicts? And the, the rule historically has been we are relatively disinclined to find conflicts. The, the next level of argument is who ought to be making that determination? And here is where things have gotten to be more contentious because what the courts have said is that the agencies who are at the national level issuing the regulations, who are being given deference in interpreting the law because the courts are saying that Congress intended in creating this particular regulatory scheme to authorize the agency to be the first place that ambiguities are resolved. The, this is a matter of statutory interpretation that the agency is given deference on that. That same statutory interpretation logically extends to the scope of the agency's regulatory scheme to its interference or non-interference with the schemes of state and local governments. I think that the question that uh, Judge O'Scanlan asked, why when all of the courts, the Ninth Circuit, the Second Circuit, and the Sixth Circuit, came out the same way on this, did the Supreme Court take cert? Uh, I think they were confused. They saw the six upside down, thought it was a nine. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court loves taking cases from the Ninth Circuit uh, to reverse your colleagues, but certainly not, not you. I, I also noticed that at the dinner the other night, there was a place for Judge O'Scanlan they did not put the usual reserve sign because they were afraid he would think it said reverse. Uh, good afternoon. I want to um, talk a little bit, and I think this follows along from uh, my colleagues here, about what I would call an agency reference model as opposed to an agency deference model to be used in uh, courts' determinations of implied preemption, particularly in products liability context. So the first thing that I just want to say is that in addition to the FDA, which is um, Dan Troy pointed out recently passed one of these preemption preambles. Uh, there are a couple other agencies that have done so quite recently too. So NHTSA in a recent uh, proposed rulemaking about roof safety standards uh, included a has included a preemption preamble in its proposed ruling. And the Consumer Product Safety Commission, this was perhaps more interesting because for the first time in its 33-year history, it actually proposed a preemption preamble, whereas the FDA and NHTSA had done so 
uh, under previous circumstances. So I think one of the reasons that this debate has some kind of currency, particularly in Washington, D.C., it's interesting, my colleagues in the New York area seem to think it's more arcane than uh, colleagues that I happen to have in Washington, D.C. So here, perhaps, it doesn't uh, take much to convince uh, individuals of the relevance, uh, particular uh, relevance of this topic. But when I talk about this agency reference model, I think I would also describe it as a middle course perspective on uh, implied preemption. And the first thing that I uh, want to point out, and uh, Ron Cass actually covered this a little bit, is that there are really interesting questions about what to do when Congress, which if Congress wanted to be clear in these areas, right, and specifically make clear its intent to preempt or displace uh, state law, it could do so. Um, in the products areas, if you take a look at various statutes, like the Motor Vehicle Safety Act, which uh, NHTSA is operating uh, in many uh, respects under, or the FDCA, the Food Drug Cosmetics Act, or there's a Federal Boat Safety Act. So all of these piecemeal-type uh, legislative actions that are covering specific products, it turns out Congress is anything but clear. Congress either says everything, in other words, it will include a very broad preemption clause and simultaneously include a very broad savings clause, namely to say that it means to preempt any, any uh, conflicting state requirement. It usually says requirement or standard and refuses to be explicit about whether it means common law state tort actions as well, and then might include a very broad savings clause. So Congress, in those instances, seems to be saying everything. And in other instances, like under the FDCA Act, it will say almost nothing. So in the provisions that deal with medical products, there is a preemption clause. But in the provisions dealing with drugs, there is not. So there's silence there. So that's why implied preemption is where all the action is uh, in this kind of area. And it's where these other organs our decision makers, namely courts and agencies, are left. Now, what I think is very interesting is by, I don't think that Congress doesn't recognize that this is the issue. And we can talk maybe during the discussions of specific examples where Congress has passed legislation against a backdrop where there is a vibrant backdrop of state common law actions, and yet it's still saying nothing. Um, for example, in the FIFRA statute, which is the Fungus, Fungicide, Insecticide, Rodenticide Act, under which uh, the EPA was most recently operating in a case called Bates, there's, there's over a 1,000 pages of legislative history and not a word about state common law tort actions, although when this act is amended in 1972, there's quite a backdrop of these, of these actions. So the interesting question to me is if you're, if you're set on the idea of congressional intent by sort of seeming to intend to punt this issue, does Congress punt to courts or to agencies, or how should this interplay work? And the model that I want to uh, push, this agency reference model, would leave the decision-making power in courts, but would not have them or allow them to either give mandatory deference to the agency position nor ignore entirely the agency's position. And I will argue to you that right now, particularly in the FDA context, in the post-preamble cases, and there are about a dozen of them in federal and state courts, courts are taking extreme positions. So Judge O'Scanlan mentioned the Levine decision. I would call that an extreme at one end, where the court rests very strongly on the idea that there's a presumption against preemption and couples that with the idea that the purpose of the FDCA is to protect health and safety. So thereby, how could any 
common law action ever be preempted, right? It's this idea, and, and um, Mr. Troy alluded to this too, of more regulation always would seem to be better. That seems clearly wrong in the context of drugs or really in the context of any product situation where the determination isn't just a cost-benefit analysis but a risk-risk analysis. So the idea is if you add warnings, you're not just saving certain consumers or warning them of certain risks, but you are inevitably creating alternative risks by individuals who would be uh, scared off from taking particular drugs or their physicians, really, in this context, denied the opportunity to advise them to take them. At the other extreme... So that's one extreme. At the other extreme, uh, and maybe this is good because it will provoke some debate, I would put the FDA misbranding argument, this idea that at the time of approval of drugs, the FDA takes the position that the manufacturer, should new risks come to light, et cetera, is basically given a safe harbor by the fact that in the pre-approval process through the new drug applications, et cetera, the agency has conclusively determined what the optimal warning is. And it is true that the FDA couples this argument with the idea that they are passing optimal, not minimal standards. I think there's a middle course approach, though, whereby courts would be able to look specifically at the risk-risk determination by the agency and use that to answer what I think is one key, but not the sole question in preemption analysis, which could happen not just at the time of approval, but post-approval. And interestingly, many of these cases uh, deal with situations that, uh, where either new risks come to light in the post-approval process or none do, and then the, and then the uh, agent, the manufacturer has an opportunity to go back, let's say, to the FDA. Levine, interestingly, was a case where the manufacturer came back to the FDA to try to strengthen a warning to apply to a different uh, uh, different variety of the drug and was told not to do so, was told to keep the current verbiage and nonetheless the court held there that there was no implied conflict preemption. I think that's wrong. But I think likewise that it would be wrong to not have any kind of a burden placed on the manufacturer in terms of this idea that they might have information about new risks that have come to light, etc., um, and do and to be uh, given a sort of safe harbor immunity in those situations. Now interestingly, there's I won't go into it, but there's a case called Perry versus Novar that I think adopt somewhat of this middle course approach. And in particular, they start with the idea that the FDA's uh, preemption preamble should not be rejected altogether, but it should not get Chevron deference. They actually argue that it should get Skidmore or power to persuade deference. And I think that's actually the right. I think my colleague uh, Tom Merrill is probably going to talk more uh, specifically about the differences between mandatory Chevron deference and Skidmore deference. But um, one, okay, one interesting sort of positive empirical observation that I came to when I was doing study of products liability preemption is if you look at all of the U.S. Supreme Courts, products liability preemption cases, which span from Chipolone up until Bates, that holding Bates aside, in every other case, the U.S. Supreme Court's ultimate decision, whether it's pro-preemption or anti-preemption, aligns with the position that was urged to it by the relevant agency. So the FDA had argued in favor of preemption in Buckman, the court goes that way, had argued against in Medtronic, the court goes that way. Same thing holds for NHTSA with respect to arguing in favor in Geyer and against in um, Freightliner. And same thing actually in the Coast Guard Spritzma situation. Spritzma sometimes held up as the punching boy case uh, because it's an anti-preemption case. But it turns out the Coast Guard, having done uh, a risk-risk analysis, came to the 
to the determination that they couldn't put forward a uniform federal policy for the regulation of uh, recreational boats uh, in that context. So I think it's interesting. The court has been very cryptic, has never said we are applying Skidmore deference here. In dissent, sometimes justices seem to explode and say, look, the the, uh, majority seems to be giving deference by saying things like we give significant weight to the agency's determination, but they never come out and say they're giving Chevron deference. If you look carefully at what the majority in those cases do, though, I think they apply something that looks like Skidmore deference. And I think in general, for a model for courts to follow, that that would be a good one. The very final observation I'll make is it is interesting if you look at these dozen cases that come after the FDA's preemption preamble. They're about, some of them are decided in federal courts, some in state courts. I think it's an interesting area to think about federalism in action, so to speak, because the state courts, remember, have a lot more experience with the regulatory compliance defense and particularly rejecting that as uh, as an immunity provision. They seem to be a little more hostile to this whole idea of preemption. The federal courts seem both more likely to listen to what the FDA says and the FDA is much more likely to intervene in those cases, either on its own or the court asks for information. So I think that will be a very interesting dynamic to watch over time. Thank you. Our final panelist will be Professor Merrill. Thank you very much. I noticed that the room's a little crowded in the back, so in the effort to clear things out, uh, let me announce in advance that I'm going to be talking about administrative law doctrine for the next eight minutes. <laughs> um, in, case, in case you want to leave quickly, uh, now's your chance to do that. Um, I will, I'm going to pro- approach this from the perspective of ad law rather than from tort law or from uh, ordinary preemption law. And I think when you approach it from the perspective of ad law, Uh, you discover that the range of disagreement here is actually quite narrow, that uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, propositions that you might think would be uh, uh, contestable or on the table, in fact, have been resolved, more or less, uh, either by uh, express holdings of the Supreme Court or by settled propositions, or at least what I would regard as settled propositions of administrative law. So let me mention three things that at least I regard as settled propositions uh, which have the effect, I think, of compressing the, the area of disagreement down to a fairly small point. First, I think it's well established that agency legislative regulations have preemptive effect. Uh, so if an agency has been delegated power to act with the force of law, has exercised that power to issue a legislative regulation, uh, that, and that re- legislative regulation is deemed to be inconsistent with Uh, state law, deemed by a court at least to be inconsistent with state law, there's no question uh, that the federal regulation trumps or preempts uh, state law. This was held back in 1961 in United States versus Shimer and reaffirmed in the De La Cuesta case in 1982. So that issue, I think, is off the table. Second, um, if Congress expressly delegates authority to an agency to issue preemptive regulations, in other words, not just legislative regulations, but regulations that legislatively say we deem state law in Area X to be preempted, that is permissible uh, as well. There are a number of examples in federal law where Congress has given express preemptive authority uh, to agencies, uh, uh, and those uh, exercises of that authority have been upheld by courts. Uh, The Supreme Court authority in this point is a little sketchier, uh, 
Uh, if I were to have my way, I would like the court to insist a bit more on the need for express delegated authority to preempt rather than finding it in some kind of clearly implied fashion. There's a case called New York versus FCC from 1988 in which the Supreme Court found express authority to issue preemptive regulations based on a ratification of prior practice, congressional ratification of prior practice by the agency, which I think is a little bit, pushing it a little bit far, but the the basic proposition that Congress can expressly delegate preemptive authority to an agency, I think, is, is, is off the table as well. Thirdly, and maybe Dan will disagree with me on this, but I think this is settled, an agency's statement of its opinion uh, about the preemptive effect of either the federal statutory scheme or uh, a combination of the federal statutes and federal regulations is not entitled to Chevron deference. Uh, uh, The reason for this follows from sort of uh, recently established principles about when Chevron does and does not apply the infamous Meade case that Ron tried to make me promise not to mention, uh, uh, I think holds, uh, who knows exactly what it holds, but I think it holds that uh, agencies uh, can act, can, are entitled to Chevron deference only if they uh, act with the force of law, meaning that they are issuing something like a legislative regulation which is within their delegated jurisdiction. If they issue an interpretive rule or if they issue some kind of opinion letter, uh, that's not entitled uh, to Chevron deference. Now, with, with respect to these preambles, the issue is a little bit trickier. Uh, but I take it that a statement in a preamble uh, about the preemptive effect of a federal regulation, which is being adopted uh, pursuant to whatever the preambulatory statement uh, is uh, appended to, uh, the statement in the preamble does not itself have the force of law. Administrative lawyers distinguish all the time between uh, what's called the, uh, the statement of basis and purpose required by Section 553 of the APA uh, and the regulation itself. The regulation itself is the thing that goes in the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations. That's what has the force of law. The statement in the preamble is the explanation for the regulation. It does not, of its uh, own effect, have the force of law. Uh, if an agency uh, has to interpret federal its statutory authority, in order to uh, reach a particular legislative regulation and the explanation for its statutory authority is in the preamble, uh, then I think that is entitled to Chevron deference because the explanation is the condition precedent for the regulation itself. But if you have something like a regulation dealing with drug labeling and then the FDA says in the preamble, oh, by the way, it's our opinion that any state tort action uh, inconsistent with this labeling would be preempted. That's, I think, just a statement of agency opinion. It's not a necessary condition of finding authority um, on the part of the agency to issue that regulation, so it would not be entitled to Chevron deference. So I think those propositions are, are pretty much settled. What is not settled is the issue presented by the Waters case, which is going to be argued on November 29th, which is what happens if an agency that does have legislative rulemaking authority but has not been given express authority to issue preemptive regulations, what if such an agency uses its general rulemaking authority to issue what purports to be a legislative regulation, which regulation then states the agency's determination uh, that state law in a particular area is preempted? Is that sort of legislative regulation pursuant to a general delegation of authority rather than to an express uh, authority to preempt, is that also entitled to Chevron deference, or is it entitled to some lesser degree of deference, presumably Skidmore deference that Kathy uh, mentioned? Um, Now, 
in answering this question, I think uh, we do have to revert to some more general principles than uh, simply case law and settled principles uh, of administrative law. Uh, and uh, I think uh, several propositions are relevant here in sorting things out. First of all, I do not agree with Ron's statement uh, that determinations of preemption are simply a species of statutory interpretation. Uh, I think what happens in preemption cases is really there are three determinations are being made, not just one. Uh, the first determination is that somebody, whether it be a court or an agency, has to decide what the federal law means or requires. Um, uh, so that's an exercise in straightforward interpretation. Then the decision maker, whether it be a court or an agency, has to decide what state law means or requires. Uh, that's another exercise in interpretation. But the third step, I think, is critically different. The third step uh, is that the decision maker has to decide how much tension there is between the federal law and the state law, if any, and given the degree of tension, whether uh, it's necessary to displace or nullify state law uh, in order to effectuate uh, the general purposes of the federal statutory regime. Uh, now, in some instances, it's not necessary to do that third step because you've got an express preemption clause which is squarely on point, but that would not be a contested case uh, in the first place. In all other cases, if there's a dispute about the scope of an express preemption clause, if there's something about obstacle or frustration of purpose preemption or field preemption, or even in most cases of conflict preemption where there's not a square uh, X or not X type of conflict, somebody has to decide uh, whether displacement of state law is necessary. Uh, and the, so the question is really one of institutional choice, as several of the other speakers have mentioned, that who's going to make this determination of displacement? Uh, uh, and I think an argument can be made uh, that the agencies ought to be given uh, significant say-so uh, in this exercise. The agencies, after all, have great expertise about the nature of the statutory scheme. They probably have unique understanding about how state law is or is not going to interfere uh, with the way the federal statutory scheme is carried out. Uh, but let me give you some uh, quick reasons why I think uh, strong Chevron deference probably is not the way to go in making this displacement determination. And I'll just mention these quickly, and then we can uh, engage in more dialogue. First of all, and Kathy mentioned this briefly, uh, preemption is an issue that comes up in state court almost as often as it comes up in federal court. And I have trouble uh, imagining exactly how uh, the, federal, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to enforce a duty upon state courts to give Chevron deference to federal administrative agencies on the question of preemption. Uh, the Supreme Court just does not have the institutional capacity, I think, to change state court behavior uh, in that radical direction. Something like the Skidmore Doctrine, which uh, uh, allows agencies to submit their views in various ways and instructs courts to give them uh, effect insofar as they're persuasive, I think would be more, something more reasonably workable with the state court system. Secondly, I think there are systemic considerations here. Uh, most of the panelists here are uh, interested in explaining how Madison was really in favor of powerful federal government. Uh, but there are systemic interests here in terms of maintaining a balance between the federal government and the states and not having the federal regulatory juggernaut completely take over our system. And I'm concerned that if each federal agency, which has a little individual regulatory slice of the world, is given Chevron deference for its determinations of when state law is displaced, we're going to see a lot more displacement of state law because there will be a tendency for each agency individual to push the limits of federal law in isolation, and we need some kind of judicial counterweight to that. I think the federal judiciary, the Supreme Court in particular, that has the broad brush picture uh, about the need for 
uh, state and federal balance in the system uh, uh, is a better institution to maintain that balance than individual agencies are. And lastly, and I'll close with this point, uh, the whole question of whether agencies can preempt or given strong Chevron deference for preempting state law is another one of these issues that implicate the, the scope of an agency's authority. Uh, uh, all sorts of scope issues come up about whether agencies can regulate in particular issue, area, issue areas, uh, whether agencies can regulate with the force of law or not. But uh, the question of whether agencies can give, be given strong deference for displacing state laws is another boundary maintenance issue. And again, I think there are reasons to be concerned about giving that issue to states to decide uh, with, under a strong deference doctrine like, like Chevron. I think agencies would have a tendency to want to would view state regulators as rivals, would see state courts as rivalrous, and would have a tendency to try to expand their authority. And we need to be able to let, have federal courts discipline the boundaries of agency action. Uh, Skidmore is better suited to doing that than Chevron. So thank you. Well, I want to thank the panelists for laying out all of the considerations very, very effectively. And before we take questions from the floor, I thought I would offer the opportunity for each of the panelists to comment on anything any of the others have said. And since uh, Mr. Troy went first, you'll have a first crack. Thank you. I think Kathy and Tom expect me to uh, start throwing things at them on the question of Chevron versus Skidmore deference. Um, and I, I, don't I think they're very strong arguments, which I understand for according Skidmore deference. But I want to make a couple of points. First of all, there was. Uh, the, the, the preamble, there's, there's preemption whether or not the agency came out with the preamble, and the agency was asserting that there was preemption before that. The key point is what are the, what are, what are the de decisions that the agency is, is making and what kind of a position, what kind of a position does it put the, um, the company in, okay? So that's point one. Point two, the FDA was very clear that you do need to come post-approval and adhere to the very stringent regulations which require you to, to notify the agency of additional decisions, uh, of additional information. Um, a, 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 a company's obligations do not end once the product is approved, and FDA scrutiny of a product does not end once the product is approved. This is a big misconception. Companies are required to collect adverse event data and to feed it back to the agency under very stringent time frames, the agency continues to monitor that data. Okay. But this Levine case, which I am not involved with, let me confess, um, although I do generally represent, at this point, many clients in the, uh, in, in the in connection with these issues. But in, in the Levine case, I mean, this really, I want to spend a moment on it to show what an existential threat it is to FDA, what an untenable position it puts the company in, and how bad it is for the public health. Okay. In this Levine case, basically FDA looked at the data. The company came and said, we want to put this additional warning. And FDA said, we don't think it's warranted. We think the current route of administration, notwithstanding that it has some very serious side effects, in this case the woman, tragically, who was a very popular local musician, lost her arm. But we believe this is the proper route of administration looking at all of the data. And so the company actually not only gave in all the relevant data, but the company actually proposed an additional warning. FDA wrote back formally, retain current verbiage, okay? If a state court can come along and say, who cares what the FDA says? Company, you needed to do something else, right? What does that say, A, about the FDA's ability to decide what is and is not on a drug label? B, what is the company supposed to do? So, in, 
I'm not saying that any time a company changes its warning before FDA has officially blessed it, that it, there's, there's misbranding. But there are circumstances where FDA has said, you know what, you can't just slap any warning that you want for sort of defensive labeling purposes. The problem with that, and this gets into the public health point, is the labels have become, and let's be clear, what we, when we're talking about FDA labeling, we're talking about those little um, uh, things that are folded that are in, you know, a tiny, tiny, tiny font that fill pages and pages and pages and pages that basically nobody can read. Which we all read slavishly all before read slavishly. we take each pill. The, 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 those are actually intended for the physician, but even the physicians, um, they've become so prolix that FDA found that they were being written too much as defensive legal documents rather than you know, as risk communication documents to doctors. And so the context in which FDA put out this, this preemption statement was a context in which it was overhauling that labeling, that physician label, and it was saying, we're going to try and make this simpler. And what happened in the, in the sort of run up to it was the company said, that's a great idea, less is more. You know, companies, you know, doctors and, and healthcare practitioners will be able to understand more if the, the thing is simpler. But if you make us take out warnings, we're going to get killed in product liability litigation and failure to warn litigation. So FDA said, well, we think it's, it's a better thing for the public health, that better decisions will be made if you have, for example, this summary provision that they called highlights. And we're going to say that if we tell you that you have to take something out or, in, or exclude something from highlights so that the public health goal can be achieved of a clear, simple, message to doctors. If that's what, if we're telling you to do that, you shouldn't be held liable by state courts for failure, for failure to warn. And that All was right. the context in which FDA ultimately issued this. Now, you know, whether it gets strong Chevron deference or whether it gets Skidmore deference, I think it's sufficiently persuasive that, the, that it doesn't really need strong Chevron deference to prevail. Obviously, some state courts have disagreed, um, and this is an issue that, you know, is going to be, you know, uh, uh, there's going to be further judicial resolution of it. But, but the, the public health of the matter is such that we really do have and need to have one agency that determines what doctors are and should be told about a product as long as the, that agency is being given the relevant information um, as quickly as possible and as appropriate. Any rejoinder from the academy? Uh, sure, but I could I could wait my turn too. Well, that's fine. Okay, so um, two quick points. So one is um, uh, listening to you. It seems like you might adopt my middle course approach, which of course would get me uh, very excited. But I think in fact, <laughs> no. But I think in, no. But I think in fact, I didn't right? Levine. I had that power. It, this is how I put it. Levine, right, is a case that we would both see as being a wrongly decided case, and there's strong evidence that in that instance, the FDA actually rejected the increased strength of the label. But in this middle course position, so Perry versus Novartis, which we, which you um, haven't talked about, is a case that actually the court finds that there's not preemption in that case and looks, in fact, at the idea that the FDA didn't make a specific determination one way or the other. So it's in this really difficult area where there's some scientific uncertainty. And so you have the approval of the drug period where the FDA, if you're going to give sort of the other extreme position, either pushing the misbranding argument, in that case, if the court were to adopt that position or give strong Chevron deference to the position of the FDA, argued before, the court would have found that there should be preemption in that case. In fact, they held that there 
there was not, and it was specifically because the FDA was kind of looking at a bunch of inconclusive type evidence and didn't make a strong determination to regulate or not. I actually think the contested ground is going to be in this area where the relevant agency doesn't regulate, and you need to ask why. So in Spritzma, the Coast Guard didn't pass a uniform federal regulatory standard for boat, boat safety. And they came up with some reasons, like given that the boats are designed in different particular ways, it was not possible to come up with one uniform standard. But they were neither, by not regulating, saying we want to leave this just to the market, or we specifically want to displace state law. So I think a lot of the really contestable cases, where maybe our positions would diverge more, are going to come in that uh, middle ground uh, position. And just the second quick point would be this idea of disclosure of information to the FDA is a really key one. I agree with uh, what, what Dan Troy said with respect to the FDA attempts to tell the drug manufacturer that they have all sorts of obligations to come back with new information. The new report that just came out uh, studying the FDA shows how they can't enforce the promises that they ask of drug manufacturers. So I think our system should think about ways to make our rules be a little bit more information forcing. And I think my middle course approach, which deals with this post-approval period, would actually put a burden on the manufacturers to come back to the FDA. And then the FDA, which in their preamble does say, so long as you have not withheld information, they would have some means to enforce that. Because of course the problem is that the Supreme Court has said by Buckman that fraud on the FDA claims are preempted. So you have a very odd regulatory void if the FDA isn't going to police not just fraud, but full information disclosure, you have kind of a problem there. Certainly. Point of information. A company is obligated to reveal to the agency every adverse event it finds out about, and that is enforceable. And if you don't do so, there are there can are can be and have been, for example, guidance, criminal penalties associated with that. The thing that people say that FDA cannot enforce is post commitments post marketing to do certain clinical trials. Okay, but. But companies have an ongoing legal obligation to monitor and report to the agency every adverse drug experience that they find out about, and they have obligations to do what they can to try and find out that information. It's just specific studies that the agency currently cannot compel people to do post-approval. All right. Uh, Dean Kask? Thank you. I, some of you may have noticed it's very difficult to open the doors in the back. That's for a reason. We knew we'd be talking about the difference between uh, Skidmore and Chevron deference. <laughs> it, it came to that, didn't it? Yeah, after 30 years of law teaching, I recognize that glazed expression. And, and, and I, and I want to offer a word of explanation before I disagree with uh, my colleague. There are some concepts that are so complicated, only administrative law professors could uh, embrace them. Uh, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with the jargon, Chevron deference is what I give to my wife. <laughs> I know we're going to wind up doing what she says, so we start out with the presumption that that's what we're going to do. Give more deference is what she gives to me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there are many reasons why I'm a lucky man, Ben. Hey, whatever happened to no deference, right? <laughs> well, see, the, the nice thing about Skidmore deference is it means that we do what I say when she's persuaded that she wants to do it anyway. <laughs> and, and, 
that's why you know the, the notion of Skidmore deference is a wonderful concept for courts, which means that they do what the agency says when they would have done it without the agency doing it anyway. Uh, I think that we are better off having very simple concepts here. Uh, when uh, Tom says that the Supreme Court can't police all the state courts and can't make sure they give Chevron deference, uh, that doesn't strike me as a reason for telling them to give agencies no deference at all, which is essentially what the alternative is that Tom has moved to. I, I think that we have a world in which either we can give deference of some undefined magnitude or really not give deference at all. Courts talk about Skidmore deference when they aren't really deferring to the agency. Uh, I think that we also are in a world where when the agency is making decisions, it's making decisions trying to do the sort of risk-risk analysis you're talking about. I think agencies, as bad as they are at times at doing this, are far better suited to that than courts are. I have the utmost respect for judges, but I know many of them. <laughs> And the last thing you want to see is having judges make this sort of complex risk-risk analysis. It's like, I know they're doing Dancing with the Stars now. Watching the ordinary football player dance is not a pretty thing. <laughs> Before calling on Professor Merrill, um, I would like to invite any of those uh, among you who would like to ask questions to come up to the uh, microphone, and we will uh, recognize you in the order in which you appear. Uh, Professor Merrill. All right. Well, um, uh, I don't think Skidmore deference is no deference at all. I think that's much too cynical uh, a view, both about courts and about uh, agencies. Um, uh, Bill Eskridge uh, has a study that he's finishing up now in which he looks at uh, the, all this, every Supreme Court decision involving a federal agency going back to uh, uh, 1950 or something like that. And it's an interesting study. He shows that uh, federal agencies do very well. They win about 70, 75 percent of the time. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be much of any correlation between uh, Chevron, Skidmore, or cases where there's no uh, express standard of review at all. Uh, so to that extent, I guess that does tend to reinforce the idea that these standards of review don't really matter that much. Uh, but that's a study about the Supreme Court, and that Supreme Court, I think, may be a little bit different from the lower courts, where I have a feeling that Chevron deference really does make a difference, that uh, if federal courts think that Chevron applies, they shift into a different mode of thinking about uh, agency decisions than they might otherwise uh, think about them. The other interesting observation that's come out recently is Nina Mendelson has a study about this issue in the Michigan Law Review, and she looked at uh, all of the agency decisions uh, uh, that were rendered under the uh, executive order requiring federalism impact statements. And she reports quite strikingly that when agencies do talk about preemption, uh, the analysis is not very illuminating. They usually just try to follow judicial preemption doctrine uh, uh, and predict how a court would decide the preemption issue uh, rather than actually discussing the underlying substantive uh, issues about how much state law is going to interfere with federal law and how important it is to have a uniform federal scheme in any particular area. Um, and I, one of my thoughts about the desirability of Skidmore is that Skidmore really would force the agencies to try to persuade courts uh, about whether preemption is acceptable or not acceptable. Uh, and so it might, in a helpful sort of way, uh, cause them to give more uh, thoughtful consideration to the underlying policy variables, which is, after all, what we're really looking to them for illumination about. And if they just announce 
that they think it's preempted or not preempted and then are entitled to Chevron deference for that, we're really not going to get some of the benefits from uh, agency decision-making that we could potentially get uh, under a different standard of review. Thank you very much. Now the floor is open for questions. Please give us your name and your hometown. Thank you, sir. My name is Brad Tupi. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In any of these product liability trials in the courtroom, you have the plaintiff telling the story of the injury, the adverse reaction, the chemical exposure, whatever the case may be. You have an expert witness who testifies that if only the manufacturer had added a certain line to the warning, this never would have occurred, which is usually fallacious. And then you have a jury that hears evidence over the course of a few days, maybe a week, maybe longer, deliberates an hour or two, a jury made up of people, some of whom have college educations and some of whom who don't, who then determine in the cases we're discussing that the plaintiff should receive a multi-million dollar award. Um, Contrast that with the negotiation, the adversarial negotiation that occurs between a manufacturer and either your agency, Mr. Troy, or the EPA in the case of a FIFRA pesticide that takes years millions of dollars, truckloads of documents. And you're going to have a situation where a jury hearing evidence for just a couple days can substitute its judgment for this adversarial agency process. It doesn't make any sense. What's really going on, I submit, and I'd be interested in your response, is that the courts are saying that the manufacturers are insurers and that every injury must have a remedy and that's never been our law. I think there's a question in there somewhere. Responses? Well, I, I, I make a very good point. Um, I'm not sure that, FDA, that everybody in the industry would necessarily characterize their relationship with FDA as adversarial. Um, uh, there is you know, a lot of cooperation and collaboration because, frankly, companies have an interest in an appropriate label that does adequately um, address the risks of the product, in part because it protects them in product liability, in part because they want to, you know, they have reputational uh, interests from, you know, in a lot of contexts, especially vis-a-vis physicians, and it will not do if, you know, they are underestimating or understating what the risks are, and then physicians can end up, you know, with bad outcomes and themselves getting sued in, in medical malpractice. And let's, you know, even though we're all lawyers, let's be clear that the only thing that motivates people in, you know, it's not the law that motivates everybody in the, you know, healthcare system. There are actually some people who want to make people better um, and want to do the right thing. Uh, so, but, but you're right, you're right. And, you know, one of, the, one of the ideas that people have floated in the drug context is should there be some kind of better way? Should there be some kind of alternative compensation system? Because since we know to a moral certainty when a product is approved that there are going to be a certain number of people who are going to be harmed by it. Let's take statins, those cholesterol-lowering drugs, which are literally miracles of modern technology, and the most important thing that any of you can do is go and check your cholesterol, and probably, and this is what Bob Temple, the dean of the drug approval process, always says, the most important public health development in the last 15 years has been development of statins. We know that there are going to be a certain number of people who are going to get a terrible condition called rhabdomyolysis. Okay? Is it worth it societally for those 50 people who are going to get rhabdomyolysis to have the incredibly positive you know, public health benefits associated with statins. Of course it is. Should something be done for those 50 people? 
you know, there's a pretty good case that there should be. Should it be handled through our tort system, which is essentially a lottery, I would argue the answer to that is no. Dean Casper. Well, actually, uh, as having spent 15 years as a dean, I, I'm at my best turning the mic on and off for my colleague here. Um, I, I think it's very important to recognize that there will be cases when it is appropriate to have uh, the issue handled through the tort system. Uh, my disagreement, I think, with, with Tom and, and Catherine is uh, over where the presumption should lie on who should make that decision. And I think that the while the agencies do have incentives to overreach, uh, the complex decision, the, the amount of difficulty in trying to figure out what should be opened up to other mechanisms and what should not, it is so difficult and it is so likely to be gotten wrong because the competence of the decision maker in a state court uh, litigation is so much less sophisticated at making this decision, so much less geared to making this decision, uh, even if they had every incentive to do that. Uh, I think that the risk of doing it that way is greater. So my presumption would lie with the ability of the agency to say, don't do that. Uh, sure. I, I think, um, I'll try to make it quick. Um, I actually think it's important to frame that particular debate as the balance between state common law tort and regulation, this sort of interplay or balance between the two. And first, a note of caution. I think that people who are in favor very much of preemption in this particular area should, um, should have a bit of caution in two respects. One, your argument about preemption can become overdetermined. So I'll use Richard Epstein, a um, colleague at University of Chicago, as the sort of punching bag as we've debated this issue. Richard Epstein believes that products liability cases should be handled in contract, not tort law, having failed to convince the academic community or the prevailing court systems of that view. He then thought there should be a very strong regulatory compliance defense. Turns out there are very few state outliers. Michigan is one that has a regulatory compliance statutory defense that's almost airtight. But having failed there, he wants to be in favor of preemption across the board here. But even he will say this is a kind of overdetermined view. It doesn't actually rest on the nuances of Supreme Court jurisprudence on preemption principles. So to my mind, the intersection between preemption principles and this, this uh, tort law regulatory balance are actually important uh, to think about. And the second word of caution is we might think the FDA warts and all, which is actually of our agencies, the one that does the most ex-ante regulation, right? The United States has often said, as compared to Europe or other countries, that we have mostly ex-post litigation regulating things. The FDA does the most ex-ante litigation. Would we want to play out this same scenario when it's the Consumer Product Safety Commission that's doing something without the kind of comprehensive review? Would we want to play out the same situation when it's a different, you know, statutory authorization, different kind of scheme? So I think it's just, uh, it's important not to let views like, you know, juries can't decide issues swamp what actually could lead to a principled argument for preemption in a particular context, like my position would be in this, in this drug context. Okay. No. The next question from the floor. Richard Samp from Arlington, Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, very often the Supreme Court in its preemption cases says, well, we start with this strong uh, presumption against preemption because, after all, Congress... Uh, is known to be so respectful of the views of states that uh, they would never want to unknowingly preempt some sort of state law. And while sometimes I think that's just a make-wake argument that's put into the cases, I think at least 
Justice Ginsburg believes that because she will repeatedly say, well, even when there's evidence that Congress intended to uh, preempt affirmative state regulation, uh, I think it would be just so outlandish that they would ever want to preempt a common law tort suit that I'm just never going to uh, agree that there is such preemption unless Congress says that explicitly. And uh, certainly, as you can tell from the gist of my question, I, I think that this whole idea that Congress uh, really uh, starts with this uh, presumption against preemption just has no empirical basis and uh, it seems to me that if a court looks very carefully at all the evidence and it says well it's a close question but we think that the uh, uh, at the end of the day we think that the uh, evidence is slightly in favor of preemption it, it would make no sense uh, to say but nonetheless because of this presumption we're going to uh, shift the balance and go uh, against uh, preemption I'm wondering if there is anybody on this panel who would support the idea that there ought to be a presumption against preemption. Professor Merrill. Not me, but... Um, <laughs> uh, well, but you, but you have the floor, it's okay. <laughs> I think the, um, the problem with the presumption against preemption is it's just too overly broad. I mean, you could either have a presumption in favor of the states in every case or a presumption in favor of the federal government in every case. Either one of those rules would be overly broad. The, it, the presumption against preemption fails to account for the fact that we have a, a federal government of enumerated powers. Uh, uh, and so uh, in some areas, uh, the regulation of interstate commerce, for example, uh, why would you have a presumption against, in favor of or against preemption? Uh, because that's presumptively an area where the federal government has uh, exclusive or at least plenary authority to regulate. And the Dormant Commerce Clause stands as testament to the fact that there's, in fact, a presumption in favor of federal regulation in that area. The more interesting aspect of your question, I think, is this question about to what extent the states are represented in Congress. Uh, uh, the, this is an argument that Herbert Wexler pioneered back in the 1950s and has uh, continues to have adherence and is, is offered as a justification for um, federal courts uh, not overriding uh, state prerogatives in, in different areas. And one, one interesting thing I'm sort of struggling with right now is to what extent uh, does that sort of perspective apply to administrative agencies to either an equal, lesser, or greater extent than to Congress itself? Um, and again, I think the answer is probably it all depends on what agency you're talking about. We have a lot of administrative agencies, and EPA is the one I'm most familiar with, uh, where most of the regulating under the federal statutes is done by state administrators. And so uh, federal EPA is constantly interacting with state regulators on a daily basis and is very familiar with state perspectives on problems. And in that sort of context, you might say that the agency really is a very effective representative of state interests because they're intimately familiar with the state perspective. But other agencies, and here I would hazard uh, to cite the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency as a potential example, uh, are quite the opposite. In the banking world, you have federally chartered banks and state chartered banks, and the, the OCC is in charge of federally chartered banks, and the states are in charge of state chartered banks, and there's not a lot of uh, interaction between those two uh, groups. And so uh, when the OCC uh, seeks to preempt state regulation of, of operating state chartered operating subsidiaries of federal banks, uh, they're uh, taking, uh, they're entrenching on the turf of the state regulators in a big time way, and they don't really have a lot of information as to what the impacts of that uh, are going to be. And so in that context, Congress may, in fact, be a better forum for sorting out state versus uh, federal interests uh, than the agency is. So I, it's a very complicated question. Uh, and one reason I think why maybe Herb, Herb Wexler's analysis is not the way to go in trying to sort out these issues uh, case by case. 
Before taking um, a comment from Professor Sharkey, Professor Merrill, would you like to hazard a guess on what the Supreme Court will do in the uh, OCC uh, bank case? Yeah, well, let's see. Uh, this is my This is Waters. This is my private view and not the view of any client that I represent in this case. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, my guess is that the court is going to look at this and they're going to say, is there any way we can decide this without reaching this issue? <laughs> uh, and, and I think they'll figure out a way of doing that. So it, the, this big debate, which has been briefed in the amicus briefs between Chevron deference, Skidmore deference, no deference on this whole issue, my guess is will not be resolved by Waters. But I've been wrong before. All right. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make a point about the presumption against preemption. Um, in these products liability Supreme Court cases, it's actually interesting to trace where it does and where it does not rear its head. So in Geyer, of course, there's not a mention in the majority opinion about this alleged presumption against preemption, and the court does, uh, in that instance, preempts. In the Bates case, suddenly, you know, it comes back in full force. So I think that, um, if anything, it seems to kind of be um, not such a, um, at least in these products cases, not, uh, not something that is definitely um, uh, dispositive in deciding the issues. Anyone else? Question from the floor. Yes, Michael Rossman. I'm with the Center for Individual Rights, and I have some questions about this Chevron Skidmore deference. First, uh, Dean Cass, uh, is your wife aware of the fact that you are the legislative body of your marriage and that her implementing regulations have to be consistent with your overall legislative edicts? <laughs> and, and Professor Merrill, a, a more serious question. Think of two, two different ideas. One, the FDA presents a regulation that says these labels that we require are not just floors but ceilings. Second statement, um, they preempt state tort law. I understand your argument why the second statement is only entitled to skid more deference. Is the first statement entitled to any more deference? I'll go ahead and answer my question first. <laughs> my, my wife, who is also my law partner, is, of course, the ultimate source of all authority on all key issues. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and even if she were not sitting here today in the front row, this I would say better exactly than Chevron the same thing. <laughs> This is better than Chevron deference, I think, no? Would you like to have equal time? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it said I was entitled to three goats and a sheep. <laughs> okay. Professor Merrill. Uh, that's a terrific question, very insightful. Um, and it is actually is an issue in the Waters case because there are like three different regulations in the Waters case, one of which is basically where the OCC says, we think state law is preempted. So that's a very clear uh, agency determination that it intends to preempt or it is seeking to preempt state law. But a couple of other regulations say things like uh, national banks are entitled to have operating subsidiaries uh, uh, that can conduct all the powers that a can all, do to all the functions that a national bank does. Well, that doesn't say anything about preemption. But if you upheld that, applying Chevron deference, you're like 98% of the way to preemption right there. So uh, I actually addressed this in my brief, uh, and, and what I tried to argue was that you have to distinguish uh, between or agency interpretations of legislation or agency regulations uh, which do not speak to preemption uh, and, and agency determinations of preemption. And if you're seeking deference to an agency determination of preemption, then I really think you have to apply Skidmore 
to any subsidiary uh, determination that the agency has made, which is a step in the chain of reasoning that leads up to its conclusion about preemption. That's a tough argument, uh, and it kind of opens up a potential can of worms. You know, Iran is very right to uh, uh, caution us or, or chastise me uh, for suggesting more complexity uh, in these areas. Uh, and, and that does raise a potential can of worms in the sense that, uh, you know, it, it presumes that courts can distinguish between the standard of review that you would apply when an agency is overtly trying to determine preemption as opposed to just interpreting its statute and letting the court make the final judgment about preemption. But I, I think something like that is necessary unless we're just sort of to turn uh, the whole issue over to agencies as kind of runaway engines of preemption.